Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open up to uh, First Epistle of Peter. Uh, you'll find that in your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, it's on page 1114, I believe. It's, it's stated there in, uh, in your bulletin. And uh, if you can, would love you to have a, that epistle open because I'll be referring uh, to other portions beyond the verses that we're going to read. Our attention is going to be on verses 10 through 12 of, of chapter 1. Of course, we've been working through First Peter. Eric invited me simply to continue in the series. I said, yes, I'd be happy to. I have a, a love for this epistle, as, as he said he does as well. And if you've been here the past couple of weeks, you may remember that, that Peter uh, pulls from imagery throughout the Old Testament. He applies all of that imagery to this New Testament church that he's writing to. It's known, and Eric has said this, as one of the general epistles because it's not written to a specific place. And you see that in the introductory verses that Peter is, is writing to uh, congregations spread through Asia Minor, or what we know today as uh, modern-day uh, Turkey, uh, in these various places. And he's saying, all of this imagery of the Old Testament applies now to you, to you and to your experience. And so he refers to them in the opening verse as elect exiles of the dispersion. That is Israel's experience. I'll say a little bit more about that later, but he's saying to the New Testament church, this is your experience. And if it's the experience of, of this church, these churches to whom Peter writes, it means it's true for our experience as well. Exiles of the dispersion. Israel, if you remember, scattered, dispersed among the nations. And Peter is saying, that is true for you. Yet there's more imagery that, that Peter uses. You see this in the beginning of chapter 2. Not only are you dispersed and scattered, but he also refers to them as stones that God has gathered and that he is building up into a temple, again, drawing from the Old Testament. And he refers to them in chapter 2, verse 9, as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now the reason I'm pointing those things out as it ties in with the verses, just the few verses that we're looking at this morning. As Paul applies to the church, including us, these seemingly contrary experiences, scattered and dispersed exiles, yet gathered and built up a chosen people, a holy nation, a people for his own possession these seemingly contrary experiences drawn from the image imagery of the Old Testament and we'll see in the few verses that we're looking at this morning more of why it is that Peter applies this Old Testament imagery to New Testament believers in Christ not not simply Jews but Gentiles as well scattered throughout the world and so let's turn our attention uh, to these verses, I'm going to begin reading in verse 8 of chapter 1 to provide a little more context, but our attention is going to be focused on verses 10 through 12. Peter says this, though you have not seen him, referring to Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, 
You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray together. Gracious God, by that same Spirit, your Spirit, who inspired the prophets of old, the Spirit of Christ... Uh, The Spirit who now is at work, whenever your word is declared, we pray that you would be at work among us, Uh, that we would hear these words as we ought, as your word, uh, not only to a people long ago, uh, but to us, that we might understand ourselves in relation to you and the great things you have done in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name, amen. I uh, have a pastor friend who posted a picture of a t-shirt he's considering purchasing for his entire uh, staff at, at the church where, we, where he serves. It's a very uh, simple shirt. It's a black t-shirt and it has a simple white script on it. And the top says in bolder lines, it's in the bulletin. And then in smaller print underneath says, it's been there for weeks. It's in the bulletin. It's been there for weeks. You can actually purchase that t-shirt on Amazon if any of you are are interested. It's a humorous and and somewhat at times humorously frustrating experience where you make the announcement. It's regular. It's repeated. It's stated from the pulpit. It's written in the bulletin. It's sent via email. But inevitably, someone will say, I had no idea. Uh, When was that announced? When was that announced? change made. I never heard. Now, why, why does that happen? It's not only in the church. You've experienced this probably in other places. My wife works for an organization that's hosting this big conference with people coming in from various places, doctors, highly educated individuals, and inevitably my wife as the one who's organizing this event receives emails the week before, days before, saying, now when am I supposed to be there? Uh, what exactly am I supposed to do? Right, things that have been clearly stated for some reason that have not been heard. It's in the bulletin. It's been there for weeks. And of course, at times, it's the sender's fault. Something wasn't stated clearly. There is a confusing message. But at times, it's the receiver. Even though it was clearly stated repeatedly, Our attention is just drawn to other things. We're easily distracted by the things around us. And Peter feels the need to say, of this salvation, it's in the Bible. And it's been there for a very long time. Uh, Not merely weeks, generations, centuries, millennia, concerning this salvation that even the prophets of old searched and inquired, prophesying about the grace 
that was to be yours. Now, why do we miss the message? That's something else we'll, we'll see as we consider the substance of what Peter says in these three short verses. Why do we miss the message that's repeatedly announced? The repeated announcement is a consistent message of salvation about seemingly contradictory experiences that makes it difficult for us to hear. And we need to ask ourselves, is that true for us? This message repeatedly stated but of seemingly contradictory experiences, have we really heard? Have we understood? Again, elect but exiles. This salvation of suffering and subsequent glory. It's in the Bible, Peter says. It's been there for a very long time. Have we received the message or will we too be surprised? So that's in the background of, of Peter's statement here, as we'll see. It's a message of salvation. That's what we'll focus on first. It's a message of salvation. And not any salvation. Peter speaks in very definite terms. You see that in verse 10. It is this salvation. It's not just a salvation. It is this salvation. Not one that's vague. One that's clearly defined already in the preceding nine verses. If you look up in verse 2, it's a salvation about grace and peace that are multiplied to you. Peter says in verse 3, it's a salvation that expresses God's great mercy. Think of the verses that we read in verse 10. It's a salvation about grace that is yours. It's a salvation the prophets foretold, he says, not serving themselves but serving you. It's about good news, he says, good news that is preached to you. Grace, peace, and mercy for you. As you obtain the outcome of your faith, as he says in verse 9, the salvation of your souls. And so don't miss the obvious. This salvation is for you. All of this is for you, Peter is saying. But don't then conclude, and this is the struggle. Don't then conclude that it's all about you. This salvation is for you, but this salvation is not about you. Let me try to illustrate the difference there of something that's for you, but not about you, and this illustration will implicate me, it might implicate some of you. Have you ever received a gift Maybe it's from a husband or a wife or a dear friend, parent, child. They've, they've, they've worked, they've labored, they've purchased this gift for you. They've given it to you and you receive this gift. Maybe it's for Christmas or your birthday. But then you decided there was really something else you'd rather have. And so you return the gift in order to get what you really wanted. And maybe you ask permission to do so. Well, it's not exactly what I wanted. Would you mind if I returned it and got the thing I actually did want? Well, that's an example of taking something that was for you and making it about you. It was for you. It was from another person expressing the love that other person has for you but then you've taken that which is for you and you've made it an opportunity to fulfill 
your own desires. It's for me, but now I've made it about me. Not the love you have for me, but my desires I want to fulfill for myself. Or think of another example, one that Peter himself uses, you see up in verse 4 of chapter 1, where he describes this inheritance or this salvation in terms of an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, right? That's what an inheritance is. An inheritance is for you, but it's not about you. An inheritance is about the toil and talent of another through which they provided for you. And so any profit you receive from that inheritance should always point you to the toil and talent of that person and what they've accomplished and how they've shared it with you. It's for you, but it's not about you. It's an, inherit, it's an inheritance. And you don't get to decide what it is you'll get exactly and what you don't. And again, this is the danger This salvation that is for you, you and I tend to make about ourselves. And that's why it's very difficult for us when this salvation includes these seemingly contradictory experiences of suffering before glory that don't necessarily allow us to pursue fulfilling our own desires. For you, but not about you. The salvation, Peter is saying, has Jesus Christ as its exclusive focus from start to finish. It's all about him. I mentioned briefly as we began how Peter incorporates all of this Old Testament imagery in, into his letter. And you might think simply, well, Peter is himself a Jew, grew up hearing the Hebrew scriptures. It's formed his imagination. It's his frame of reference, and of course, all of that is true, but it's not the simple reason that Peter uses all of this Old Testament imagery for the New Testament church. And you see that here in these three verses that we read. The reason that Peter uses all of this Old Testament history and says it's about the New Testament church is is simply for that reason. It is actually about the New Testament church. It's about what you and I now have in Christ. All of it, Peter saying, peered towards, yearned forward to the climactic age of salvation in which you and I now live. All of it anticipates, all of it points forward to Christ. Now, is that different from the way we read the Old Testament? I think often it is. For, for many Christians it is. There are many different ways we might read the Old Testament. I think one of the ways we're tempted to read the Old Testament as, is as if that is when God's presence was really there with his people. That is when it was clear that God was present with his people in the world doing amazing and dramatic things. And Peter is saying, no, no, it's now. It's not then. It's now that God is doing amazing and dramatic things because of what he has accomplished in Christ Jesus. All of it points forward to this day of salvation. Now, this is not to suggest that the Old Testament prophets had nothing of immediate value to the people 
whom they spoke to directly, but Peter is saying it all points forward to Christ. What's written about Abraham was not simply for Abraham. It wasn't about Abraham, he's saying. What what is recorded about Moses was not ultimately about Moses. What is told of Israel, Peter is saying, is not ultimately about Israel. It's for you, and it's about Jesus Christ, his sufferings and subsequent glories. And again, this is the surprise. If we're willing to hear it, if we receive it, and consider it in our own experience, this pattern consistently written throughout the scriptures from the beginning of sufferings and subsequent glories centered on Christ Jesus the Savior. Think of Jesus after his own resurrection. You might remember this account in Luke chapter 24. His disciples are gathered together in their sorrow in an upper room. Two of the disciples are walking along a road discussing the things that had happened. And Jesus comes up to them unrecognized, unbeknownst to them, and he asks what they're discussing along the way, and they talk to them about the demise of the one in whom they had had such great hopes. And do you remember Jesus here, the resurrected Jesus, yet not yet revealing his glory? Do you remember his response to those two disciples? He says, was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer and then enter into his glory? And it goes on and, and it says, and Jesus, beginning with Moses in all the scriptures... He interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see that it's not, these are not contrary experiences, Jesus are saying. They are necessary experiences. It's not, see, it's not contradictory experiences of suffering followed by glory. Jesus is saying this was necessary. And he says, in effect, It's in the Bible, and it's been there for a long time. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreting to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This salvation, that's the message for you about him, suffering and subsequent glory. But here's what we'll consider next. Might this be a message that you and I Resist. Many of you know it. Most of you know it. But might you at some deep level actually resist it in your own life? Might you prefer another salvation? Might you actually prefer a different kind of Savior? Peter himself is the best example of one who did. You remember this, maybe from Matthew chapter 16, the account of Peter's interaction with Jesus where He comes to a climactic point, and he asks his disciples a very direct question, who do you say that I am? And Peter jumps to answer first, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus immediately begins to explain what will happen to him when they get to Jerusalem, how he will suffer many things, how he will be crucified, and how he will be raised on the third day. And do you remember 
Peter's response. It says he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. This will never happen to you. Far be it from you, the disciple Peter says to his Savior. Suffering and subsequent glory was not the salvation that Peter had in mind, but it's the only salvation there is. And it's the one that's written throughout the Bible and it's been there for a very long time. Think of the stories that you're drawn to. What's the, what's the genre or the plot line of the shows you like to watch? Rom-coms, thrillers, action movies, or maybe you just like sports because there's a definite period of time that at the end someone clearly wins and someone clearly loses. It's that simple. You know, think of the media and the type of entertainment that you're drawn to. Maybe, maybe those plots, the genre that we're drawn to reflects the way that we would rather life to be, whether it's thrilling or very simple. Or it may not necessarily reflect what you hope life to be, but as you turn to those genres, those stories, that media, that entertainment, it shapes the way you expect life to be and it's actually counter to the way life actually is, as Scripture tells of it here. This consistent plot that the prophets searched out and began to understand themselves, guided by the Spirit of Christ, Peter says, that follows this definite pattern. They see it again and again. They recognize it's there. We read about it in Isaiah 53. Suffering and subsequent glory. Hidden no longer but announced to you by that same Spirit through those, Peter says, who preached the good news to you in verse 12. See, if we find ourselves resisting like Peter, or maybe you don't find yourself resisting, maybe it just doesn't resonate with you. It just doesn't connect. But the reason is, in the background, there's this other plot that's informing the way you do life informing your expectations, fulfilling your own desires, rather than living into this pattern that's revealed throughout Scripture. This salvation, grace, mercy, peace for you, requires this Savior. Think again of, of Peter's description at the start of his letter, exiles of the dispersion, that sounds ominous. How would you like to receive a letter that's addressed in that way to you. Exiles of the dispersion. You wonder, well, where's he going with this? What, what's he going to say next? It doesn't sound like the way you want to be thought of. It doesn't sound like the way maybe you want to think of yourself. And of course, as we've said, it refers back to Israel. But do you remember why they were exiled and dispersed? It was, it was, a, it was a act of judgment against God's own people where they were exiled and dispersed from the glorious land that God had promised for not abiding by his word. But that's not the starting point. That language of exile and dispersion reaches further back to the opening pages of Scripture. The first exile and dispersion experienced by Adam and Eve 
Why? Because they refused to abide by God's word in the glorious garden where he had placed them to further his works in the world, deciding to go their own way, to live their own lives. And they are dispersed and scattered, exiled from the garden in judgment. Exiles of the dispersion. But here's the thing. It all turns. And the reason it turns is because in that very exile and dispersion in the opening pages, as Nick has already said earlier, God promises a redeemer. A redeemer who himself will be exiled and separated and cast out in order that others might be reconciled, him exiled, that you and I might be reconciled to this God and receive all of this that Paul, that Peter says is a part of this salvation, grace, mercy, and peace multiplied to you because of what the Savior experienced. Isaiah 53, we read about it, pierced for our transgressions. It's for you, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace, he says, suffering upon him. But it also describes their subsequent glory. In Isaiah 53, in verses 10 and 11, the final verses that we read, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall be satisfied. The prophet says, this salvation requires this Savior if grace and peace are to be multiplied to you. It's for you, but it's focused entirely on him. And this brings us to the last point I want to stress, which is this. A share in this salvation means you and I will also share in his sufferings. The pattern of suffering and glory, this same spirit, the spirit of Christ, at work in the prophets of old, will begin to replicate in my life and in yours. You know, there's actually only one other place in the Bible that uses this precise phrase to identify the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Now, there are other places in the New Testament that use similar language. Uh, if you recall in John's Gospel, Jesus has quite a bit to say about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 through 16 in particular. And he describes the Spirit as sent by the Father in my name, Jesus says. It's the Spirit of Christ. And, and Jesus says there, he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. And so throughout, the New Testament portrays the work of the Spirit as tied intimately to the person of Jesus Christ. But the only other place in the New Testament where this precise designation, Spirit of Christ, is used is in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, where Paul says this, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. We read this in the assurance of, of pardon after we confessed our sin. In the verses just preceding Romans 8, 9, where it goes on to describe the work of the Spirit at work in our prayers as we cry out, Abba, Father, assured that we will be heard, uh, describing the inheritance 
that we have through Christ, the Spirit bearing witness that you are children of God, Paul says, heirs with Christ, he says, provided that we suffer with him that we might also be glorified in him. See, Peter, as well as Paul, as well as written throughout all of Scripture, says this is the pattern replicated in God's people through the Spirit of Christ. If you have 1 Peter open, flip over just a couple of pages to chapter 4. I believe Eric referred to this this, uh, verse last week or the week before in verses 12 through 13 of chapter 4, where Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Do not be surprised. It's written in the Bible. It's been there for a very long time. It's for you, but it's not about you. It's about us being conformed into the image of our glorious Savior who suffered before entering into His own glory. Suffering for sinners, enduring what we deserved, that those experiences might lead us into a new direction, not of condemnation, but of this salvation. I wish I had thought of suggesting the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, for us to sing this morning. If you remember that hymn, begins, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. And it goes on in the third line, and it says this, When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. So all of that distress, all of that suffering in Christ leads you in a surprising direction. Uh, Not of destruction, not of condemnation, but to glory. This salvation, there's no other. This Savior... There is no other, but again, here's the temptation. We'll conclude with this. The temptation is to, is to be drawn to another. Paul recognized this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he, he's telling Timothy, preach the word. If you remember that in verse uh, 1 and 2 of, of chapter 4, preach the word. And he says, a time is coming when people will no longer endure sound doctrine, but instead to suit their own desires, they will turn aside from listening to the truth and wander off into myths to suit their own desires. This is a temptation for the church. This is a temptation for me and for you, that we make it about about me, not about him, that we want life to conform to our desires, and so we turn away to some alternate story in which we're front and center rather than Jesus Christ and his sufferings and subsequent glories for our salvation. God controls the course of history, clearly stated here in what Peter writes, as he predicts through the prophets of old, through the Spirit of Christ, his sufferings and subsequent glories, and no less than he controlling the course of history unto the arrival of that Christ, No less does he control our own days. 
And this is your future too in Christ. If you have the Spirit of Christ, your future is glory in Him because of what He's endured for us. It's in the Bible. It's been there for a long time. May we not seek to make any other plans. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we need you to clearly state again and again what you have already clearly declared in your word. And we thank you that you've preserved it for us as a witness to who you are and a witness to what you've done once for all, once for all in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we remember as we look back to what he's endured, Uh, your commitment to us no less to do those very things in us and for us through him and his same spirit that we might enter your presence uh, free from suffering, established in glory with joy and expressible that we might proclaim your praises as one who's delivered us from darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. Hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.